Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. There is a behavioural science and a behavioural change um, lesson to be learned out of this. I think um, what, what I think the, the, the big thing around public health messaging is, and, and, and this goes for policy in general, is that you know where it's rooted in science and evidence, I don't think it needs to be patronising. Now, you know, you can argue that we live in a kind of post-factual world, which was the big Brexit debate, wasn't it? But I think what COVID-19 has done is kind of brought science and, and evidence to the fore again. And, you know, I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to recapture that decision making that we, we make it on evidence we make it on research and we and we explain why we're doing it and I think that's one of the things that, that got a lot of people on side was there was a general sense that we were doing this for a reason it wasn't just being forced upon us so first up we have good week bad week that's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond Mandy any ideas for good week Actually, Liam, it's a good week for us because this episode of Politically Speaking is brought to you in partnership with the British Heart Foundation. And in fact, I'll be joined later by uh, with David McColgan, who's the yeah. Senior Policy and Public Affairs Manager with BHF Scotland, to talk about their role um, particularly during COVID, but also some interesting research about whether or not the prevention agenda has perhaps taken a back seat when we're dealing with such an emergency. But we're very pleased to have them on board. That's great. That's actually a much better good week than my good week, um, <laughs> which is, as ever, a fairly depressing <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, I think I can so, guess this one. Go on. My, my good week is it's a good week for Richard Leonard um, after the, just that he continued to stay in the role. I mean, as ever, it kind of defend, it depends on your definition of what a good week actually is. Um, it's a bit like when John Swinney beat the motion of no confidence you know it wasn't actually a great week it's yeah. just that he's still here well I, I suppose Richard Leonard uh, can say that there wasn't actually in the end a vote of no confidence in him because despite the fact that Labour trumpeting that um, because obviously you want to be on the front pages saying that the Labour Party is changing its leader yet again um, mm. this weekend's meeting the vote of no confidence motion that was going to be put forward was withdrawn so yeah, a very it's a kind of, again, coup. Yeah, it's a limited boast. Yeah, it um, is really. It's like the opposite of a humble brag, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I still feel, like, you know, one of the problems for Richard Leonard is that um, he's supported by a deputy leader in Jackie Bailey, who was one of the key proponents of him standing down. Yeah. It's not great. It's, it's really strange. I mean, I just, I, I don't know, I've said it before, but it's like they're unaware that this is all happening publicly. You know, it's like they're having an argument in public and they think that no one's noticing. Yeah. I, I actually would go back. I mean, I don't think the problem for Scottish Labour is just changing its leader because that's happened so many times before and it's not made any difference to them. Yeah, um, they've had all sorts of different types of leaders and the same thing happens every time. Yeah, the, the support Rich, declines. Richard's the ninth. Um, mm. but, so I, I'd probably go back to about three years ago when he was elected leader and almost immediately people were briefing against him. And if you remember um, Kezia Dugdale, who had resigned as leader, she went mm. off to Australia to be an I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Um, and I, I really felt at that time that was dealt with quite lamely by Richard. Mm. I think he should have come down much stronger, shown his authority, and he didn't really. And at the same time, he also had, well, from what I understand, group meetings were 
horrendous. I mean, people were crying in them. Um, he reacted by removing Jackie Bailey and Anna Sarwa from his front bench team. Mm. Um, and that simply led to loads more spin against him. I think the, the thing I find odd is I don't know who they think would come in to replace him. Yeah. You know, they're, they're saying, okay, the guy's anonymous. Mm-hmm. People don't generally know who he is. I mean, I think we often underestimate just how interested most people are in politics anyway. Um, but like, who's, I mean, who, who in the Scottish Labour Party are they going to bring in that's suddenly going to change the game? Yeah. I don't I don't know what they're thinking. Well, is he more anonymous than somebody that doesn't yet exist? Well, that's, that's kind of philosophical, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what the Labour Party's done to us, yeah. is now we're, now we're talking about Zen puzzles. <laughs> I, I suppose, you know, the other thing that bothers me is that I'm always amazed at how once a Labour leader leaves, they actually do leave and then don't, <laughs> you know, they don't use their experience or their expertise and their limited leadership role to help inform the current leadership. It's almost like they're no longer part of the party. <laughs> Gordon Brown does tend to give advice, it's just not usually to the Labour Party. Another major intervention. Yeah, and Tony Blair's using his expertise. Yeah, that's true, and I think we'll probably, <laughs> we'll probably come on to that later on. But yeah, I do feel that there should almost be, they've got enough ex-leaders to form, well, almost form as big a group as they do within the Scottish Parliament. But they should yeah. almost, I don't know, bang their wise heads together and come up with some solutions. Like a council of former leaders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they do just seem to bugger off, basically, to the House of Lords yeah. or other. All right. Yes. So a kind um, of limited, half-hearted, good week-ish. Yeah. I mean, if it was my week, I wouldn't be calling it good. <laughs> well, you, you know, you'd like, survived. I, I had a tooth fallout last week, and it was a better week than Richard Leonard. <laughs> yeah, I had cauliflower cheese for dinner. That was a good week. <laughs> but actually quite a good week, in fairness. Yeah. yeah. What about bad um, week, then? Bad week. Well, I've got a couple of ideas for bad week. I mean, the first one that strikes me is it was quite a bad week for Leslie Evans um, after having to correct evidence or correct statements that she gave to the um, Scottish Parliament inquiry into the handling of complaints uh, about Alex Salmond. Yeah. So Leslie Evans, permanent secretary, head of the civil service. Um, I kind of feel that last week's um, committee hearing allowed us a small window into the civil service and to the fact that they forget fairly crucial things, like i.e. a meeting with the First Minister's Chief of Staff and Senior Legal Counsel. Um, Mm. And Leslie Evans had to come back and correct the record to say, oh, actually, she'd forgotten about that meeting. Um, But we also heard from um, Peter Murrell, who's the Chief Executive of the Scottish National Party. He's also the husband of the First Minister and the leader of the Scottish National Party, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, And he basically said that although he knew that there was a meeting between his wife and the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, who used to also be the leader of the party that Peter Murrell's the chief executive of, he didn't ask his wife what the meeting was about. Mm Mm-hmm. It's quite a frustrating time for the committee in a way. I mean, it feels like certainly with the Scottish government, there's huge, huge tension there. They keep writing these letters saying that they're incredibly frustrated. Well, Linda Fabiani, the the convener of the committee, keeps sending letters saying she just can't get hold of any of the stuff that she actually wants hold of. Yeah, Yeah, I think it comes back to what we'd said way back at the beginning was that the committee, I think, is unlikely to answer all the questions that people feel they've got around this whole issue. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it does feel as if it's hell-bent on um, the key players just not telling what they need to tell. Yeah, and then you have to wonder what's going on in the committee behind the scenes, because obviously that's a cross-party group. Yeah. 
Um, and Lund Fabiani sending letters, but you can tell obviously Murdo Fraser is pushing quite hard with certain questions. Alex Go Hamilton was getting quite frustrated yeah. in, the, in the committee as well. Yeah. But do you know what? Never mind all of that. <laughs> it's, oh, I would say there's a bigger issue. There's a bigger bad week, and that is for Britain. And our, oh, yeah, <laughs> and our reputation yeah, on the global stage, basically. Yeah, so this is the um, the admission from the UK government that they are going to break international law, but just in a very specific and limited way, which is actually how most criminals do operate. <laughs> I quite like the idea that you only break the law a little bit. I mean, yeah. I mean, even if even if you were a burglar or something, you're not breaking the law every second of every day. You're just bur- breaking the law when you do the burglary. Yeah. So, so this is basically, um, and I have to say, you know, we work in this political bubble, and we're finding it difficult to understand everything that's going on around this, other than it being mm-hmm. the latest episode in the Tory Brexit psychodrama. But this is the Internal Market Bill. Um, And the government is trying to argue that the withdrawal agreement, which they signed a year ago with Europe, uh, with the EU, isn't actually the agreement they thought it might be. So now they sort of need an insurance policy um, Mm. to allow them to do things that they think EU wouldn't allow them to do by having signed the legal agreement, which was the withdrawal agreement. Mm -hmm. And we had Brandon Lewis, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. basically say on the the floor of the house that they were going to be breaking the law or they could break the law. Yeah. And then there's suggestions now that around, I don't know, somewhere between a dozen up to maybe 30 MPs are considering, sorry, Tory MPs are considering rebelling on this. But there's there's more than 300 Tory MPs, which suggests that the rest of them are OK with it. Uh, well, I think we will we'll wait and see because we've already got five former prime ministers coming out saying this is just incredible. And that includes three Tory prime ministers. Um, and we've also just had uh, the Prime Minister's special envoy on freedom of religion or, or belief and a former barrister himself, Reman Chishti. Um, he's resigned his role saying, if we give our word, we must honour it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the worst possible time to be doing this as well, given that the UK's plan is to get Brexit done and then go out and strike a series of treaties with countries around the world. Yeah. I mean, it's not a great advertisement. This is no. exactly what they've done just before trying to strike those treaties. It seems that people are more people seem to be concerned about um, our reputation and our trustworthiness. Um, mm. I, I'm, I suppose I'm a bit surprised that they had such um, faith in the Prime Minister's trustworthiness anyway. Mm. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very good week for the number of people talking about the international stage. Yeah. But also within this, I mean, so clearly there's an issue about reputation and international standing, but also within this and and within the internal market bill are whole questions about devolution and whether or not the government is planning an attack on devolution. Um, Mm. And it does seem that everybody other than the Secretary of State for Scotland and his party think that that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah, and I, you can imagine that the Scottish Parliament again will probably raise concerns over the over these plans, refuse consent possibly, but I don't know how significant that will really be in the overall story. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating week, I think. Oh, and also, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, has um, a reputation for 
resigning on things of principle. And we've still... oh, he's a referee. He's a man of fairness. <laughs> he likes to keep the rules. And this does seem to be a game of two halves. So I don't know. <laughs> you were really going to have to do some research on football at some I, point. You if know, you're I can't stand doing... football analogies anyway. Um, but, but basically, I think it'll be interesting to hear what he's going to say about this, because it seems that all the evidence and everybody else seems to be saying that this is an attack on devolution. This is um, breaking the law. And you can't just continue with that, believing that it isn't when everybody else is saying otherwise. Mm -hmm. I think the other um, issue is that clearly with COVID, we've seen in the last week things changing. And I think lots of people would say that with schools going back in Scotland, we might have expected a rise in cases. But it does feel at the moment as if we're sort of going back a little bit. The cases are going up. Um, mm-hmm. Restrictions are coming back in. We're seeing... The rule of six has come into force as well. Rule of six, yeah. Um, Which sounds like a Sherlock Holmes adventure, but it's actually far more serious. Oh, no, you've already got me trying to remember what facts stand for again. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Do you remember Donald Trump, Trump's yeah. camera man? Yeah, no, just get the flashlight and the bleach, it'll be fine. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it does feel an anxious time right now about COVID, and we're back to discussing whether or not Christmas will be Christmas as we know it. And actually, I've had a really interesting conversation with David McColgan from BHF Scotland, talking very much about how Scots actually went into this pandemic pandemic not very fit and i think he's he's worried and other charities are worried that we lose sight of what was um the prevention agenda trying to make us fit for the future if you like mm-hmm. so we've um i think we're going to hear that now So, David, there's been um, analysis done by eight leading charities, including yourself, basically saying that Scotland did not go into this pandemic fighting fit. What, what does that actually mean? And I guess what the consequences were from that? Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I hate to rewind back to 2010, but essentially we're, we're talking about the prevention agenda here. Um, the Christie Commission was big on it. Um, Scottish politics has been very... Um, full of conversation and, and rhetoric around preventing ill health but fundamentally um as COVID-19 hit and the pandemic progressed we we learned more and more that those people living with underlying conditions so conditions like dementia, Alzheimer's, um, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure um, and obesity were all more at risk from complications if they caught COVID-19. Um, so what we've done is come together with a whole range of charities and um, covering all those health conditions um, to, to, to really kind of refocus public health messaging um, really ahead of the election in 2021 to say, um, you know, that the NHS was under strain due to COVID-19. Um, we know now that a lot of the evidence shows that we maybe weren't entirely fit as a nation to, to, to cope with COVID-19 and actually to protect the NHS and stop that strain um, that, that we, we saw during um, the, the, the very early days of COVID-19 is let's refocus on tackling some of the causes of that ill health, which is um, tobacco use, harmful alcohol use, um, and obesity and overweight. So really interesting piece of work. Um, many people might not see it as, I suppose, a direct consequence of COVID-19, but really it's borne out a lot of that early data that came out. So. So it's been really interesting to see all those charities come together and and shine a light on that. 
Because I guess the danger is that when you're dealing with a pandemic, which is very much about the here and now and the emergency, that, as you say, that prevention agenda, which perhaps isn't as sexy as something that you're dealing with here and now, can get put on the back burner. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think the, the you know, the, the charities that are involved, so British Heart Foundation, Cancer Research, Diabetes, British Lung Foundation, Asthma UK, Stroke Association, um, we all cover a group of diseases which are known as non-communicable disease. Um, it's the biggest killer in, in Scotland that has been for a long time. But, you know, we've got this new communicable disease, COVID-19, on the agenda. Um, it's very immediate. It's very impactful. It's had a, you know, a, a completely overriding effect of all parts of society from education to economy to sport and leisure. But, you know, as we come through COVID-19, um, you know, I don't think this is going to go away. It's, you know, we're not going to be uh, past it by the time the next election comes. But we still can't lose focus that, you know, more people um, will die from heart disease or from cancer. And, and actually, you know, the national records for Scotland show that many of those diseases from heart disease, cancer, stroke, etc., are preventable. So how do we support the NHS, take some of the strain from from uh, that part of the NHS um, by leading a, a healthier um, a healthier life? And, you know, one of the challenges in this is we get into kind of blame culture and we say, you know, you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't drink or you should be eating better. But the paper that we've produced and, and, and we're, we've launched is actually focusing on a lot of the environmental and regulatory impact. So we know, for example... In tobacco, there's been huge success by tackling that. So um, standardised tobacco packaging, um, point of sale. So, you know, you, you can't see cigarettes behind counters anymore. Um, and, and the smoking ban has really changed the environment that people people live in. And that's helped support a reduction in people smoking. But we need to do that um, much quicker and much more across the three, um, three areas of diet, overweight, obesity and alcohol and tobacco. I suppose the thing is, David, is that we've all known these things, I guess, and the difficulty has been to get the public health messages out that actually make a difference. I mean, could that be, if we are looking for any kind of silver linings from this awful pandemic, could that be one of the silver linings that actually there's an urgency now to be saying to people, look, if you want to live longer, this is this is what you need to do? Yeah, I think, I think it's really... It's a really interesting time to be having this conversation because, you know, public health messaging has really become, you know, the, the kind of the vogue messaging in, in politics in a minute. And where, you know, I can't think of another time where um, the national clinical director has been so well known in Scotland um, as, as uh, Professor Jason Leach has become. But I, I think there's lessons to be learned about how we, um, you know, we, we tackle COVID-19, you know, um, we, we all know to wash our hands. We all know to stay two metres apart. You know, we all know to wear face masks. Um, you know, there'll be people who may argue against some of that. But the, the message has been very clear. And I think it's been clear and sustained. And that's the important thing. And how do we take some of that public health message? And maybe do, how do we frame it? So a little bit of this paper has been framing the health prevention agenda in light of COVID-19. Um, and how do we, you know, drive that forward? And I think, I think it is, it will be really interesting going forward what some of that health messaging might look like, how impactful it will be, and 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 actually, you know, the, the, there'll be many many people much 
smarter than me who are looking at um you know how some of that messaging landed where it landed and i think you know one one of the things that's always really been a struggle around health prevention is the difference um uh, or the uh, the growing gap in inequalities so we know that you know people who want to listen to stop smoking messages listen to it and do it and those who don't don't and what we've seen is a growing gap between you know smoking rates in the richest and the poorest parts of the community and and how why isn't those messages landing and i think that's a really interesting part of this and you know there'll be people looking at the pandemic messaging and where that's landed better and how we support those in um, less affluent communities to, to make those choices i mean some of the challenges around people living in and you know areas of multiple deprivation is the is, is just the environment they live in you know we we know they're more likely to be able to access alcohol we know they're more likely to have cheap takeaways on their doorstep but you know how do we use that public messaging and, and this huge i suppose case study which is COVID 19 to to make some of our messaging much stronger. I mean, interestingly, the, I guess the inequality um, debate, this has only heightened it, as you say, the, but the people that are going to be hit hardest by the economic crisis are the same people that will be hit hardest by the health crisis of the pandemic, but also they're the ones that, while this is a pandemic and a virus that affects everybody, it affects them much worse. And, and that is always the problem with public health messages. How do you deal with that? Uh, I think I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd, I'd probably be uh, standing beside Jason Leach or something. I think I think it's I think it's so hard because I mean, obviously, one of the challenges we know is that um, that you know the less affluent you are, the more likely you're to develop a non-communicable disease, so cancer, heart disease, stroke, you know, diabetes. Um, you know, the Marmot Review for years has shown us that that evidence. You know, Sir Harry Burns was a huge advocate um, of this and, and still is. You know, he he very much wanted to bring that to the fore. And I think, you know, some of the challenge around COVID is that those who are, um, those who suffer the most ill health in our country are those who live in the poorer areas and therefore have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and I think as a, as a vicious circle that we you know that we do need to break and some of that is around education in early years some of it's around opportunity to break that cycle like I said environment and regulation um you know do, doesn't necessarily target but it saturates in some of those areas where um, you know, the, the less affluent people live. And I think um, what we need to do is give everyone a level playing field. And, and this isn't about, um, you know, again, it's not about saying to the individual, this is, you know, this is all your fault. But what we're saying is, if you want to make positive choices, let's make sure you've got the same opportunity to make that choice, no matter where you live in Scotland, or let's make sure that you're not being um, saturated with advertising, marketing, or... Um, price promotions for example just because where you live and i think um you know how, how you take that messaging out there will be very hard but the scottish government have done really you know since 1999 and devolution the scottish government has been progressive in this area and i think what we as a group of organizations want to say is let's not roll back on that progression let's be um let's continue to be ambitious in the face of great adversity um, and, and, and make sure we stick to our, our guns on prevention. 
there is an issue, isn't there, though, about everybody's frightened of being patronising when it comes to public health messages. And, you know, someone of my age can remember when there were objections to uh, smoking bans because it would impact the poorest the, the hardest. But at the end of the day, haven't we discovered through this pandemic that people can be told what to do and they do accept it? So perhaps we need to stop pussyfooting around with some of the messages. Uh, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, that we're simply getting into discussing the kind of origin of the nanny state um, theory, aren't we? I mean, I think as, a, as an obvious attack on um, public health messaging slash legislation, so smoking, smoking ban in public places was a prime example that, you know, as people, you know, people have the right to smoke and people can, you know, should be allowed to smoke whenever they want to. And, and actually the smoking ban was all about secondhand smoke. It wasn't about the individual who smoked. So, you know, equally, you should have a right to, you know, go to a restaurant and not have to inhale someone else's smoke that that you didn't make a choice to to inhale. And and I think it's the same around, you know, the the kind of um, environment and and accessibility debate. You know, you should be you should be allowed to go shopping without having you know four pizzas for a pound shoved under your face. And and you know, if you're living, um, you know, if you're living in an area and you, you don't have a lot of money, then that's a really big draw to you to get to do that. But I think, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, COVID-19 has, you know, has ultimately been the nanny state acted out. You know, we were all told we weren't allowed to leave the house unless you went for your hour walk. And, um, you know, we're all, we have to stay two metres apart and we have to do this and we have to do that. And, and, and we have, you know, generally all abided by. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure as a group of organisations would be advocating a, public health approach uh, similar to COVID-19 going forward. But I think there is a behavioural science and a behavioural change um, lesson to be learned out of this. I think um, what, what I think the, the, the big thing around public health messaging is, and, and, and this goes for policy in general, is that you know where it's rooted in science and evidence, I don't think it needs to be patronising. Now, you know, you can argue that we live in a kind of post-factual world, which was the big Brexit debate, wasn't it? But I think what COVID-19 has done is kind of brought science and, and evidence to the fore again. And, you know, I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to recapture that um, that that kind of feeling around decision-making that we, we make it on evidence, we make it on research, and we, and we explain why we're doing it. And I think that's one of the things that, that got a lot of people on side was there was a general sense that we were doing this for a reason it wasn't just being forced upon us I think the other strong thing that's come out of all of this is that sense of collective responsibility and again I guess that could apply to some of the other big public health messages like you were talking about smoking there you're absolutely right people saw it as something you shouldn't be doing to other people which is a bit harder when it comes to things like obesity and alcohol to some extent but do we then start to say actually this is for the good of everybody because we simply can't afford to have a, a population that's unhealthy but also our NHS can't um, take that strain so let's do this for everyone. Yeah 100% so I think you know one of the things that's in the paper is um, you know harmful alcohol abuse, obesity, overweight and tobacco use are account for something like one and a half billion pounds worth of, you know, drain on the NHS. You know, we've we've seen everyone get out and, you know, you know, clap for the NHS. We've seen everyone really um 
really try to kind of support the NHS, make right decisions, use other services, whether it's popping at the pharmacy or you know the GP, rather than you know rushing to A and E and putting that strain on the NHS. And you know, the, I think there's you know there, there, there's an opportunity to kind of you know harness that and, and and look at that. And we've seen you know there's been you know a, a real marked shift and shift in, in some areas. So for example, you know smoking uh, attempts to quit smoking have you know ha- have been really positive during the COVID-19 because there was a link between COVID-19 and smokers that, that was kind of identified early on and I think there is that wider um I, I don't know if it's appreciation or understanding that that you know the NHS isn't um hasn't got a money tree in the middle of it that they just go and pluck money off and and, and do what they need that you know, one of the amazing things that happened at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic was the NHS had to reorganise itself in the space of a couple of weeks. And that meant hard decisions being made. That meant some services having to be stopped or, um, you know, delayed a little bit. Um, and I think people have, not, you know, maybe it's crept into the public, you know, um, psyche that the NHS is, an, is a finite organisation that has to make hard decisions and the decisions are often made on what strains are put on it. And, and maybe, you know, there's an opportunity to tap into that here. When you talk about something like obesity, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that obesity is such an obvious one. And obviously, there are lots of reasons why people are overweight, um, not least the inequalities that we've talked about. But I can remember hearing um, doctors talking about this and saying that it was actually one of the most embarrassing things that they found having to raise with uh, patients. GPs just didn't like to raise it at all. So when you've got that level of, if you like, embarrassment or sensitivity, how do, how do we get over that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, you know, I've, I've been working kind of health policy for for about seven years now. And I think it's always been something that's around. I mean, uh, overweight and obesity and um, physical activity are the kind of three that, you know, GPs and, and health professionals always find the hardest to, to talk about and I think um, a, a lot of it comes down to about having the right tools to talk about it you know it's you know if, if you just say you know if you're saying to someone you know, you're slightly overweight you need to lose weight that's not a helpful conversation but if we know how where to signpost people we know where to you know identify opportunities so you know the Scottish um, the health committee at the Scottish Parliament had an inquiry into um, social prescribing of exercise and physical activity um, you know, how do we make that more of a of a norm within uh, within the health service? And and I think it's about understanding that not everything's got a medical solution. Some of it is about societal. Some of it's about um, utilizing groups, third sector groups, or um, you know, statutory bodies that that can support people to to drive this. And I think actually when when you can identify a clear so when we when we talk about you know heart disease and, and you know we're in speaking to to Scottish government and NHS we're we're talking about patient pathways you know how do you ensure that a patient is diagnosed treated and then cared for but actually I think one of the problems around even tobacco alcohol misuse and overweight and obesity is what does that pathway look like for a GP or a practice nurse or even a cardiologist to have the conversation with someone to say you know, one of the challenges here is that, you know, you're you're smoking and we know that leads to a higher risk of heart disease. We can help you, you know, go on a pathway to to, to stop that. And I think, 
it's just about support. It's about access to information. Um, you know, knowledge is key in this. And sometimes um, I think we just um, we brush over these problems um, and and just look at the medical outcome rather than what the societal and the personal benefit to the person would be. And interestingly, again, I suppose with the pandemic, in the absence of there being a vaccine or a cure, all of this has been about prevention. And it, it's kind of capturing that and then and then sifting that back into the messages that you want to get out about specific illnesses. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, you know, the, the, the lockdown was to prevent us, you know, overwhelming the NHS where the kind of stage emergence from lockdown is to stop us going back into another lockdown. And it is all public health prevention. I mean, hand washing is probably, you know, I, I don't need, I, I'm not the expert, and Jason Leach is the expert on this one, but hand washing is probably the the biggest prevention message that we'll all ever remember. Um, I remember reading um, back in March, April time that presentations um, with rotavirus or norovirus had plummeted because in February we all suddenly got told to start washing our hands again. So that kind of little flu jump that you get going into coming out of spring never really happened. And actually, you know, that prevented a strain on the NHS. Um, so it is about that kind of like, how do we get... I, I suppose the big thing with COVID-19 was, it was imminent, it was in your face, it was, you know, we were getting daily figures. I mean, imagine a scenario where... Nicholas Sturgeon stands at the podium every day and tells you how many people have died from a heart attack today. And, you know, would people then go, well, I don't want to be that per that person. Um, what do I need to do to stop it? But, you know, that's what was happening. We were turning the news on. We were getting thousands of deaths. And, and the fear was it was going to be you or a loved one next. Um, so you all wash your hands. You all stayed at home. You all socially distanced. You only went to the supermarket at half 11 at night because there was only three people there or whatever. Um, but the reality is that, you know, I think non-communicable diseases, um, you know, cancer, strokes, heart disease, we, we've all known it. Um, you know, there's maybe a kind of philosophy of it uh, won't happen to me. Um, but with COVID-19, there was a real immediacy. And I think that that's why the public health messaging cut through. And I think that's what we need to see driving public health prevention, you know, going forward is that kind of how do we, how can we all... Um, you know, take steps to reduce our risk level. Um, I mean, the reality is, right, you know, de death is inevitable, um, but ill health isn't. You know, we can we can have, you know, plenty of years of good health, and I think that's what we need to look at um, going forward. And hopefully we don't want the uh, First Minister standing every day telling us about deaths, do we, really? But we no. need that in the back of our minds that... This will happen and we can help prevent things. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've got, I mean, one of the things I, 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 um, I kind of flagged up with, um, you know, an article that we did in the annual, annual review with Holyrood was that the steady flow of data and accessible data and understandable data was incredibly beneficial through the, the COVID pandemic because it really, you know, if you were just a lay person, you wouldn't really know where to go and find data on heart attack deaths or cancer deaths or stroke deaths, you know, and, and, and they wouldn't be published every week, you know, that, that they, they were during COVID-19. You'd have to request them and, and there's a process for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I really hope we get to a stage very soon where 
we're not having to stand at podiums and talk about you know tens of deaths or or even single figures but we're we're actually at a point where we're now the public health messaging has landed we're moving forward we're tackling the issue um and 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 actually you know we're i don't think we're ever going to return to normal but that kind of state of affairs is kind of normalized and we're, we're, we're not doing that anymore yeah, I had a, I had an interesting conversation with Jason Leach kind of way back at the beginning. And he was clearly, I mean, as was First Minister when I spoke to her, really, really moved about the way Scots had responded to being told basically what to do. And I, I kind of said to Jason, I can remember having a conversation with him about um, what happened in North Karelia in Finland, um, about basically telling a population how to live. And they changed their health statistics, you know, over a period of time by doing that. I do now wonder if we do just need to be encouraged perhaps a bit more to do the right things, to eat the right things, to exercise the right way, and that government has a role in that. Yeah, and I think I think there there is a role in that. I mean there's so I suppose there's two trains of thoughts. There's there's kind of that, you know, the, the the finish model there where we you know talk about you know teach a society how to really change the way they live and and i suppose market um market forces then would result in fast food takeaway shutting down and you know cheap cheap food um that's full of high fat salt and sugar kind of disappearing from our shelves or there's the other way is you take the regulation approach where you you know tackle industry you face it you know head on and kind of say you know, we don't want foods that have got, you know, I don't know, forty percent of your salt intake being readily available on the shelf at three pound a pop. Um, I mean, personally, I think there's a middle road to play there. I think industry's got a a big part to play in this. You know, they can. There, there's been a huge reformulation agenda globally, um, really about how we remove some of the high fat, salt, sugar content that's in some of it. You know, you only have to go and pick up a ready meal or or, or um, anything from a shop and look at the front of pit you know packet labeling and sometimes the the numbers are absolutely startling and sometimes when you look at them you have to be a math genius to work out actually how much is in what you're eating because it's one third of a portion or it's one eighth of a portion but you're you, and you're having to work it out so i think there's a there's an education aspect to this about how we understand how to eat better i think there's a societal impact about the environments we move in you know what's what's ready available to pick up and what's um what's not i suppose and then there's also that kind of that industry that kind of that is you know that drives the the market for high fat salt and sugar how do they support um some of that um those those efforts and i think you know that brings about that huge you know health shift that you're looking for and it's not you know, nobody thinks it's going to happen over three, four years. And I suppose this is maybe the, the age-old problem of setting four-year targets in government about how do you, you know, how do you take a 20-year view of this and, and, and try and drive the change that you want to see? I mean, obviously, government is uh, and all the parties are preparing to put manifestos together for next election in May. I mean, if you had a magic wand now and, and could direct what they were going to put, what would you be looking for? Um... And now you've put me on the spot. <laughs> so I think, I mean, <laughs> fundamentally, I think that there, there, there needs to be a strong statement going into the next election about the prevention agenda and that it's here to stay. 
I don't think it's necessarily fallen by the wayside, but I do think there has been a challenge about how immediate it's been over the, the recent years. So, for example, um, the obesity bill that um, that was um, paused, I mean, largely due to COVID-19, but that's been on the back burner for for a number of years in, in, in Scotland. And, and you know, the, there's an opportunity to bring that forward again. I think we definitely want to see um, action on that. And that would include things like price promotions and point of sale, uh, th- those sort of things. You know, I, I, I'd love to see a, a Scottish government that was, um, you know, brave enough and, and bullish enough to take on industry and say, right, we're looking at reformulation. You know, salt from a heart disease perspective is one of the, the biggest problems in terms of high fat salt and sugar, you know, mass leads to massive um, uh, rates of hypertension, which leads to increased risk of heart disease and stroke. And I think salt is often the the the, the bit that's missed out when we talk about diet. Um, I think there's loads of things around um, market and availability of alcohol. It's not it's never really been treated the same as tobacco. Um, minimum uh, unit pricing has been a success, but we know that because of kind of inflation, you know, the, the current rate of minimum unit pricing isn't quite um, as impactful as it maybe was when it first came in. And we need to maybe look at almost like a um, cigarette taxation approach where it kind of steps up over time. Um, but really, I think there, you know, and, and the other thing that, that we absolutely need to look at, and, and this is a, you know, I, I can hear politicians rolling their eyes here because it's, you know, at a time when, resources are tight but we, we really can't be dwindling budgets that for the services that support people who either smoke um at risk of being overweight or obese or those that are um taking harmful amounts of alcohol you know a lot of these services are the lifelines that support people to to make the change in need and and i think um as that kind of whole systems um package we need to do but you know i think what's really exciting about the next election is it'll be the first parliament that we've had in scotland who we've got a public health scotland run uh, up and running for the full parliament and i think it'll be great to see the impact that will have on the on the debate within within the scottish parliament scottish government and society in general the other thing that's happened, um, I suppose, during this pandemic is that almost everybody's become an expert in epidemiology, um, or at least think they're medically qualified to, to judge on what might be wrong with somebody. Have you heard any ridiculous stories? Um, I, I mean, I've, I've read plenty of them on Twitter, um, but then that's just a place to go for ridiculous stories most times. Um, I, or from mean, the President of the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, I, mean I think the you know, the, you, there was lots of it going around, and, and I suppose this is a problem with you know such a connected world um, that you, you know, you can you can. I remember reading a an article that was shared on LinkedIn. I think that was like massively engaged with, which was about how to tell if you've got COVID nineteen, and it was basically like if you can't hold your breath for like two minutes, you've got COVID nineteen. And I was like, there's probably people all over the world passing out because they've been trying to China and. Uh, I think I think you're right. I mean, I was listening to I was listening to the the last podcast and the um yeah the end when you were talking about the kind of um I, I don't know backstreet um clinicians that have popped up all over the world that have got solutions to everything. And I suppose when you work within the health industry, you know every condition have got groups that have got advice. Or so one of the ones, for example, one of the most ridiculous myths it seems to forever 
um, come back round is the whole philosophy of if you're having a heart attack, you could cough and the, the blockage will be removed. I mean, that's just absolutely bonkers. I mean, if you're having a heart attack, call 999. Don't, don't try and cough the yeah. blockage out. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the debate... I think there's been, you know, you only have to even look at the kind of anti-mask debate around some of this is that, you know, the the science and the evidence is is so, so poor. But, uh, you know, people can galvanise really quickly now through social media and all these different platforms that you, you, you might have been the only person in your friends group who, you know, had this idea, but suddenly you can connect with 100,000 people and there's a whole movement around it. Um, I think I shared um, yeah. I, I shared a tweet the other day with, a, I think it was a police officer from Australia who described all these people as a tinfoil heart brigade and it's probably the most the the most brave press conference I've ever seen a public official do, but you know that's kind of how to do it in Australia, but the, it's, it's how you challenge these myths, right? That's a, that's a big problem, you know, how do you credibly tackle you know misconceptions or or poor use of evidence and and how do you ensure you know so president trump's one you know about the you know and and ingesting bleach essentially i mean the the clinical movement against that was so rapid that it was unbelievable and you know how you know it is about how you respond to it rather than you know the the person that's making it and i think you know we've seen a really strong um, clinical community and, and and expert research community come forward and kind of challenge it. And I think that's where, I, you know, when I was talking earlier about that kind of post-factual society, I kind of feel COVID-19's maybe rolled us back a little bit on that because some of the most prominent people during this have been the scientist, the researcher, the clinician, you know, and I think that, that's been really interesting. And I suppose just finally, um, David, you know, given the idea that you'd get seven months not having to go into an office, that you might be able to use that time to improve your own health. How have you dealt with your own health during this this lockdown? (laughs) Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I've been playing a lot of golf. Um, And... uh, and, and you know golf golf's great it's four hours of walking in a field um i i understand why it was one of the first sports to come back really quickly because you can social distance especially if you hit your ball in the trees away from where everyone else is um so i think it's yeah it's been interesting i mean i i, I was an avid um user of my one hour walk um it was quite funny you started seeing the same people um on your one hour loop um and it was almost kind of like a uh, a running joke that if someone wasn't there you, you'd ask everyone else if they've seen them um but yeah I, you know walking um a, a lot of golf since uh, it reopened and i also have the the luxury of a uh, lockdown with a one-year-old and a three-year-old so they've been keeping me keeping me on my toes in the in the back garden so it's been uh yeah it's been it's been interesting um but yeah, I think a lot of, you know, there's a lot of folks on physical health, but mental health was really important during lockdown as well. And and how you, um, you know, keep yourself occupied. I mean, I found myself at times wondering to the kind of, will this ever end? This is becoming really quite stressful. But I was just finding, you know, ways to, you know, sit and read a book, um, play with, you know, play with the kids, just do something different. And I, and I think that was probably the bigger the bigger challenge for me was that kind of mental aspect, but um, you know, we were, you know, it was 
there was a real community around. I think a lot of people found that you know there's a real community where they where they lived and and that was really interesting for me. You know, I'm I'm one of these people who get up at six o'clock, I'm away by seven, and I'm not home till six o'clock. So you don't really see much about what goes on. So it was interesting just to hear from neighbours, engage with neighbours, and 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 just you know gain that sense of community again. So David, this part of the podcast, uh, Liam and I actually started because he, I think he saw me as kind of the old drunk in the corner of a pub, uh, just moaning on about whatever I wanted to moan on about. So have you got a particular kind of rant of the day or a big gripe, something that's really annoyed you? I mean, I could I could be here for hours, but my biggest my biggest gripe at the minute, um, certainly from a kind of political aspect, is the uh, or what is affectionately referred to as whataboutery, or more uh, commonly the kind of approach that says we're not that bad in Scotland because England or Wales are rubbish, or the why is Labour got a right to talk about education when Welsh Labour have you know cocked it up down there, or it's fine and well for the Tories to say this in Edinburgh, but look what they're doing in Westminster. I get the I get the political manoeuvring around it, but I suppose from a pure policy perspective, and this is from a policy practitioner, is it drives me bonkers because policy decisions are made relative to where the 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 community is going to impact and the context they're made in. And just because you're a Scottish Conservative doesn't mean you'd make the same decision as Westminster. And just because you're Scottish Labour doesn't mean you'll make the same decision as Wales. And I suppose the SNP are the only party in Scotland that are exempt from being accused of this because they can't really run a government anywhere else. So that that, that drives me bonkers. And it's been quite prevalent during the, the, the kind of coming out of the COVID-19 process. Yeah, I mean, normally we, we sign this bit off by saying politicians should do something about that. But I suspect in this case politicians will not do anything about that. <laughs> Probably not. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.